It was, will you let me do this for you for free with the promise that I can share it publicly for marketing purposes? I was literally just building it one step at a time, piece by piece in those early years. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. This is where we talk about growing our life story business. Clients come to us because they want to create a book, a video, an audio, or some other creative project to help them share their memories and their life stories with their family and friends and with future generations. And every time, every week, I say, create a book, a video, or an audio. And I realize that I am very overdue in bringing on a guest to talk about videos. And that's why I'm so excited for today's guest. We have Rich Polt with us. He's the founder of Acknowledge Media, a company that creates video life stories for clients. He came into the business after building two PR companies and his passion, as I'm guessing it is for most of us, is helping people share their stories. Also, back in 2012, he started an initiative called Talking Good, where he and his team interviewed more than 100 people. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But um, Rich, I'm just happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Amy. I'm thrilled to be here. I'd really like to talk about the nitty gritty, getting into the specifics of how you do these video projects. Um, but first, why don't we start off by having you tell people how you got into this? What got you interested in doing life stories and specifically doing life stories on video? <laughs> okay, well, I could give you the the one minute, the 10 minute or the one hour version. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep it more concise than one hour. Um, I don't think any two people have ever come into this business in the same way. Um, and, and my story is, is no different. Um, I, my background is in public relations and communications. So, you know, I didn't come to this from the movie making side. I came to this from the storytelling and the communications side. Um, I, you know, I did PR for 25 years or so. I had a business. It was great, but it wasn't what I wanted to do when I grew up. It wasn't what I was truly <laughs> passionate about. Um, I was always drawn to the human narrative, even as I worked with organizations and philanthropies and businesses. You know, I was always looking to kind of uh, cast their stories through the lens of people. And in particular, when I worked with CEOs or executives, I was always trying to help connect the dots to how their work intersected with their personal stories. And so looking at it from that lens, I, in 2013 or 12, as you had mentioned, started something called Talking Good in which I was doing these interviews with uh, change makers. And they were very templomatic, kind of 10 standard questions that they would answer. And then I would write these overviews. And it really just started to pick up steam from there. I was doing it as a blog and then people started saying, you need to talk to so-and-so. And long story short, over the course of three or four years, I ended up creating a team of people around the country. We were curating these stories and, and doing these written kind of interviews. And, and I was writing these synopses and these, these kind of mini life stories, so to speak, um, showing how their passions and how their personas intersected with the work they did. Anyway, um, I was loving it so much. And we started to move into uh, the realm of audio interviews. We were doing sound clouds. We were doing uh, uh, photography layouts. 
And then one day I said, you know what, I want to try one with video. And the experience was absolutely transformative. Um, there was a moment where I was interviewing this individual and I, I strayed from the script and I asked him a very personal question. Um, and I won't get into the specifics right now, but essentially he, he, you know, he had been a deadbeat dad and reconnected with his son later in life. And I asked him, when was the first time you felt like a father, a real father? And he kind of paused and there was just this moment and he started crying and I started crying. Um, and, and it took off the, the story ended up being, um, picked up by the Huffington post and he ended up becoming a CNN hero. And it was kind of, uh, just this amazing intersection of my, my PR life, but also this, this human interviewing. And I said, this is something I want to be doing more of. And that's, it kind of took off from there. The story goes on, but, but that was the seed that really germinated into this business ultimately. Mm, that's beautiful. So it, it was really an epiphany. Um, it was, it was taking a leap and it sounds like it was an intuitive leap to ask a personal question and then, boy, and then it changed the course of everything for you. It sounds like it, it absolutely did. I mean, the thing was, is that talking good, that, that whole project, it was, it was philanthropic in nature. I was not monetizing it. I was making no money. And I, as I became increasingly passionate about that work, it was taking all of my time. I wasn't focused on my consultancy and my communications practice. And so I realized if, if this is what I want to do more of, I need to figure out how I'm going to turn it into a business. And then as so often happens, serendipity stepped in. My cousin uh, was getting married in Austin. Uh, I think it was in 2015. And she said, Rich, I, I really think you should speak to my fiance's father. You'd be really interested in the work he does. And this gentleman's name is Mike O'Krent, and he has a business in Austin, Texas called Life Stories Alive, which does this kind of work. He does video mm -hmm. biographies. And so Mike and I began talking. And, it, you know, one of my key lessons in business is you need to have mentors, good mentors. And Mike and I ended up developing a good relationship. Um, he was a mentor for me, and he helped teach me how you can turn this into a business. Um, and he and I still talk every month. We share ideas, successes, failures, and so forth. So it's been important for this journey for me. Mm. And you're touching on something very important that I, I spoke with a um, on a recent podcast episode with a guest and the whole idea of having um, a community. There's not too many people who do life story work. Um, and and it sounds like you found somebody who is not only a mentor, but somebody who uh, can be a colleague that you touch base with regularly. And I think that we, you know, we need to find those wells of, of you know, to, to draw from, to keep our inspiration high and to keep our, um, our, um, just our engagement high with the work that we do, because when you don't have colleagues that you're working with every day, then it, it can get to be a lonely thing. Now, it sounds like um, I have so many questions and I think I'm probably going to end up jump, jumping around a bit, but no it sounds like you, um, from what I looked at at your website, which by the way, for the listeners, definitely go and check out this website, Acknowledge Media. Um, it's, it's very beautifully done. I like that you have, um, the, there's not much verbiage on it. You really let the samples of your stories 
tell the story of what you do. So you have all kinds of samples of videos that you've done. Um, some are kind of teasers, like uh, I, I guess what you call a trailer, and some are excerpts, but they're they're beautiful. Um, but it looks like you have a team of people that work with you. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. I don't have any full-time employees. Everybody's a 1099. Um, and so I have, uh, you know, a great bullpen of videographers who I work with, many of them local, some, you know, outside New York, LA. Um, I work with a wonderful editor. I work with, um, and, and, and now my, my team is actually beginning to grow. You're kind of catching me at an interesting moment in the growth of the business. We've really reached a, a neat inflection point, and I am beginning to, to grow um, the roles that I require on my teams. Um, so I have an archival producer now, a media director. So yeah, it's exciting as the team grows. Wow, right. Now, where, um, how did you get to this point where you're needing people playing different roles? What was the impetus behind this growth? What, what, what did I do right that has resulted in growth? Yes, exactly. Well, if I knew that, I would have done it two and a half years ago. <laughs> the, so the, re- the reality is, I don't know what the, you know, the secret sauce was. I don't know why we crossed this tipping point, um, but I have a number of theories. First of all, um, the first three years of this business, you know, I launched it officially in early 2016. The first three years was really a lot of hard, hard work, pounding the pavement, getting a lot of rejection and, you know, going to bed at night, asking myself, is this going to work? Am I making mistake? Was it the right thing at age 44 with two young kids and a wife to, to, you know, walk away from a more lucrative career to start something like this. And so that just being able to, to kind of think about it as a marathon and and not a sprint was, I think the first thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, over the last couple of months, six months, a year, the word of mouth really has begun to spread. Um, you know, as you start to, work with people who have increasingly large networks and frankly, networks that of, of greater means, um, you know, they begin talking about, uh, they talk, talk about that this exciting project they did. Um, and then, you know, what's really cool is when somebody is referred to you and they already know two other people that you've worked with. Uh-huh. And so it, 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 it really, it's just kind of been this, um, uh, this organic growth through through word of mouth and positive referrals. In the beginning, before you had the word of mouth, before you had done very many of these projects, you said that you were out pounding the pavement. What did that look like? That was a, was that a lot of outreach? Were you were you cold calling people? Um, did you have partners that were promoting your services? Okay, so all all good questions. The the first thing that was very helpful for me was the fact that a my background was in PR and communications, mm-hmm. so that the very discipline that I was trained in was one that I would be able to use to my advantage. But also that having run, I didn't just do PR; I had I had had my own PR agency, so I had already experienced what it was like to grow a business and to kind of 
feel that fear in the pit of your stomach and, and, and the risk tolerance as you know, when, when, when I had my agency, I had, you know, six or seven employees, I had to make payroll every month. And, and just being able to live with that on a month to month basis is a skill unto itself. And so I came into this with those experiences to draw from, but I also knew that it was going to take time to develop some traction. And so I made sure when I went into this that I had enough of a nest egg set aside that I would be able to survive a year with little income, um, which is in fact what happened. I, I drew down on my savings in that first year um, more than I wanted to, but I was focused not on making money in year one. I was focused on pulling together a portfolio of clients that I could use to help market myself and and create an outward facing brand. And so I was literally just, you know, going to people who I knew would be great for this and asking, you know, can you, can you cover my costs of my videographer, right? Can you afford to pay me a thousand dollars, right? Or $750, like forget what I wanted to be making on these or what I should have been making on these. It was, will you let me do this for you for free with the promise that I can share it publicly for marketing purposes? Um, and so I, I was literally just building it one step at a time, um, piece by piece in that early, in those early years. And it's the best way of attracting clients is by showing them things that you've already done. Um, you know, these are such personal projects, whether it's, you know, regardless of the medium that we're using, whether it's video or book or audio, they're such personal projects. So when, when a potential client can see something that you've done and you've done very well and you've done with heart and with sensitivity for somebody else, then they're far more likely to trust you with something that is going to be very personal to them. No doubt. So, I, yeah, yeah, I think they ha building that that portfolio is a is a fantastic idea. Okay, so going back to those early days, um, how did you learn the skills to sit in front of somebody with a camera and interview them about their life, or did that um, did the talking good the skills that you built with that and the doing all of those interviews did that help you when you decided you wanted to do this? Not really. Talking good. Huh. Talking good was remote. You know, I would send ten stock questions to somebody oh. by email and say, "Have your answers to me." You know, by the end of April, and then I would read through their answers and I would do my write up and I would post it. So there was very little interaction involved there. I think that my my natural ability. I had to. I have some natural ability, and I think that came both as a combination of just who I am, my personality, I'm, I'm outgoing, and I like listening to people. So I think those are prerequisites that, that one needs to be successful as a, a video biographer. Um, but also my work in the communications field, building rapport with people, um, listening to them and, and, and understanding deeper truths, seeing motifs and themes and stories. So I came into this work with those skill sets, but then you just have to do it. I didn't, hmm. I, I did a lot of things wrong in those early, those early interviews. Um, and I probably still do things wrong. I'm, you know, I'm constantly, the more you learn about something, the more you realize how much more you have to learn. So I'm constantly 
you know, walking away from an interview and saying, oh, I should have done this or I could have done that better. But the good news is, is that for most people, they don't recognize it. They don't realize it. I mean, I had some real blunders early on. Um, you know, I committed the cardinal sin in, in one of my first interviews of speaking over a person who was having a real moment, right? They were, mm-hmm. they were reflecting on something. I, they were, this was, this was a gentleman who was not prone to showing emotion and he was, he was starting to tear up, I think. And I just like, you know, Mr. Uncomfortable with silences, I jumped right in and, and you know, and, and, and it was so painful every time I, I think or, and watch that scene, I'm like reminded and, you know, so important learning for me had to happen. Another example is, um, the political, ugh, the political question, um, politics is inherently a treacherous topic, but I think these days it's even more divisive. And I, there was a, a, a lovely uh, woman who I was interviewing and she was very liberal. Um, this was part of her identity. And so of course we were talking about her, her work her civic engagement and the conversation turned to Donald Trump and she expressed her feelings on the current administration. And then I, I, I stupidly asked, you know, does your family see eye to eye with you on this? And she, you know, the answer was basically some do, some don't. She elaborated. But what happened was, is this was, this was something that the kids had contracted with me for, right? Like she wasn't the client, the kids, the children were the clients. Mm-hmm. And when they saw this, some of them were very offended and it created, um, it created a lot of work for me on the back end in post-production. Um, ultimately I had to, had to create two versions, <laughs> Um, oh, boy. yeah. Yeah. A, again, a real learning curve for me. So yeah, that's a long way of saying that, uh, this is one of those jobs that you learn as you go. Right. And, and for all of us only for you, I would imagine that the blunders are probably a little bit, um, harder to fix. I, you know, with, with this woman and the conversation about Trump, um, it didn't happen. The mistake wasn't apparent um, while you were doing the interviewing. There was no snafu during the interview, but it was the reception of that, it sounds like, that caused the problems and then, I guess, the work with the editing on the editing side of it. But I'm also guessing that, you know, I do books for people. So, things like that come up occasionally. Um, usually, it's not because they've sent something out to be read by somebody else, but it's usually the storyteller who thinks, oh, wait, what if, you know, what if a family member uh, reacts adversely to something that I've said? And, you know, and then we work on, on uh, either deleting something or wording it in a different way that's, um, you know, possibly more gracious or um, more affirming. But for you, I, I guess there's, there's really some some pitfalls that you can fall into because you've got the you've got the camera running right and i'm wondering if that was really difficult at the beginning even um even just the style of interviewing and uh learning how to not speak when you didn't want your voice on the recording with the person like how did you learn all of the small things that make those recordings run smoothly well for one i had good coaching Right. You know, I talked about Mike. And so coming into coming into my, my first interview, I already was talking to somebody who, who was giving me good advice on how to do this. And, you know, his background, he came out of the world of the 
um, the Shoah Foundation, Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation. So he already kind of learned these best practices in interviewing. Mm. So I was equipped with some of that. Um, but, you know, I, I would I would say that I, I do feel like I have latitude on the back end to um, to correct things. Maybe not as much latitude as one would in the world of, of writing, but, you know, with editing, you can do a lot. You can, I, if I ask a question that I don't think is worded well, or, you know, as I tend to do, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a question that has way too much prologue. You know, I'll, you know, in 1967, you know, after working <laughs> with a number of companies, you really took a leap and then you went to this new company. What was it like? You know, and then in editing, I'll realize that all I needed to have was what was your new company like, you know, and so I'll, I can chop. So I think that I do have some latitude and there, there, it was forgiving um, being able to, to, to edit on the back end. Um, but, you know, you're right. When we talk about how I do it and the kinds of products that I that I that I produce, it might make more sense. So I'm going to hold off on, on getting into the nitty gritty. But there's a number of things that I do in the interview process itself that allow me to create the kind of products that I am. So I'll leave it there. Well, good. Perfect. You gave me the perfect segue (laughs) because my next question was going to be, you know, what does this look like when you, um, so not talking about the marketing or, or, you know, the sales conversation or anything like that, but somebody has hired you and you show up at their doorstep ready to do that first interview. Um, Tell us what, what the process looks like. So yeah, I would never show up at their, at their, you know, doorstep ready to do the first uh, interview with a camera. That's for sure. Um, okay. <laughs> basically, um, there are three phases involved and, you know, with video, uh, I, I find that, um, one of the advantages to doing video over say writing is that these engagements can feel like less of a lift for the people involved. My understanding in the world of writing is that they can be, you know, 10, 12 interviews that are spaced over the course of, of weeks and months. Um, this is, is a lot, uh, quicker of an engagement. And so we break it into three phases. Phase one is pre-production. What happens before we film and in pre-production, what we're doing is we're going in and we're meeting with the, the interviewee, right? The client is not always the interviewee. Sometimes the clients are the kids, but we're meeting with the interviewee. We're learning about them. We're taking them through a, you know, two to three hour pre-questionnaire, which is where we really learn the where's, the what's, and the when's of their life. And, um, you know, if it's a couple, those will be two separate sessions. Um, but that's, that's really important. That's what gives us our roadmap for creating the questions that we're going to use in the filmed interview. And even more importantly than that, it's, it's where we have an opportunity to develop trust and, and rapport. You know, I've said it before, mm-hmm. you, the worst possible thing that we could do is sit down with someone with a camera rolling. I mean, talk about an uncomfortable mm-hmm. situation. You have two cameras and lights in your face and a person asking you personal questions. And if, if you've just met this person, forget it. So we have to have that relationship. Also, during pre-production, we'll work with the family to collect photos. We could do a whole show on photo collection, but you know that can be a uh, tricky process for some. But we collect the photos and other materials, and that's pre-production. Then, uh, and, well, can I? I'm going to interrupt you yeah. there because I have a couple questions about yeah. that. So, when you're sitting down and you're having a two or three hour session with which 
with each of the storytellers. Um, are you taking notes? Are you record, you know, recording that with a, with a voice recorder? Um, how do you process all of the stuff that you're learning then into the, the list of questions and topics that you're going to cover when you go into the recording session? My laptop is open and I'm taking notes feverishly. And I've developed mm. a shorthand that I use for kind of flagging things that I know are going to be important thematically or questions that I'm going to want to ask. Um, what I'm after is stories that we can talk about. And of course, I don't want them to share those stories in the pre-interview. So what I say is, okay, we're going to be talking. I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. And inevitably, what's going to happen is you are going to think of and want to start sharing stories with me. Hmm. So I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to be the bad guy and I'm going to cut you off. And so when you do think of a story, that's great. And what I'm going to want is the headline. What's the headline of this story? The time that I was in basic training and this happened. Great. I type it down, I highlight it, and then I know in the interview to ask them to tell me that story. So I have little tricks like that, which I use as I'm taking notes. The only time that I might record a pre-interview session is when I'm dealing with someone who, A, is dealing with cognition issues, because what tends to happen in those pre-interviews is uh, we jump around and uh, those individuals might lose their train of thought. And it's difficult for me to piece it all together. And so I, it's almost forensically, I need to have those recordings to help. Um, or if you know, they have a strong accent and I'm worried about understanding everything, I don't want to be saying over and over again, I didn't get that. What did you say? What did you say? So I like having a recording. That's the only time that I would use that. Are the adult children involved in this conversation at all? Are they adding to the list of questions that they'd like to hear their, their parents talk about? So when the adult children are the clients, when they are the ones who have initiated this project, then yes, I work with them to help shape it. Not too much. Um, it, it, I find that often they're working with me because they don't want to be too hands-on. Um, but mm. I will give them a questionnaire in advance that asks them to give me information about their parent or parents or grandparents who's being, you know, whoever's being interviewed, as well as some basic questions. You know, what are some stories that you're hoping they're going to share? What are some questions that you would like me to ask them? What are some red flag topics, things that you think could be challenging or difficult for your parents? Um, is there anything you've always wanted to ask them but never have? Right. Oh, what a good question. Those, those yeah. kinds of things. So, so I collect that information. What I have found is that doing it in the other direction does not work as well. Meaning if the parents, if the people who are going to be interviewed were the people who initiated the project and, you know, it's a done deal, right? The contract signed and we, we've begun doing this. And then they, and then they say, oh, well, you know, well, can we engage the kids? I've tried that on one or two occasions. But what happens is the kids may not be on board with the whole program. Mm. And in one case, the children were like, mom, dad, why are you doing this? And it, it, it imploded the, the whole engagement. And I, you know, and it's not to say that there's something like, it's nice to be able to engage them. And I wish that I always could, but sometimes it creates an unnecessary hurdle to the end goal, which is helping 
this individual or couple record their their legacy story, right? If it's something they already want to do and have bought into, I don't want to create additional hurdles. There are enough hurdles in the sales cycle um, in convincing people to do this. Um, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about some of those, but I don't want to create extra ones. Right. Yeah, that's very smart. And it can, um, you know, I've had it happen before where I was doing interviews, um, interviewing the, the storyteller, but then the wife wanted to be sitting in on the interview. And then the daughter showed up for an interview. And things can go a little wacky really quickly. Uh, when you're talking about different interpretations of stories, especially when people are strong willed, and they, you know, they firmly believe in one version of a story, and that's the storytellers, but another family member has a different version and um yeah it's it, it it takes it in directions that it's not really interesting and it's not going to serve as um as part of their legacy story right. absolutely whenever possible i try to do these conversations uh just one-on-one with nobody else who can exert their opinions their personality no mom that's not what happened mom <laughs> you know <laughs> right <laughs> Right. Okay. So then you have you have this uh, pre-interview stage or pre-recording stage, um, and and then you take all of this information and you shape it into um, is it is it a kind of a sort of script like a documentary style script or or what happens at that point? So you know this this is part of the process that I probably spend way too much time on. Um, but it's necessary, I feel like, because I want to make sure I talked before about, you know, how I lead an interview that makes this pro this project or this um, product possible. And so what the final product is, and I should probably address that first, because this will make more sense. These legacy films that I create, I firmly believe people are looking for a, a, a large breadth and depth of stories, right? And a lifetime, there's a lot. As somebody who's, who writes these, you know, I mean, you, mm -hmm. you can fill hundreds of pages with stories. Three hours does not give one a lot of time to cover everything, right? So you have to be really, really smart and so, and, and, and what you choose and how you do it and how you select stories. And also, if you know anything about video editing, if things happen out of order, it can make for so much work on the back end in terms of editing. Mm. And so the way I'm able to, to do these documentaries, but also at a price point that's not going to absolutely insanely break the bank, is I need to make sure that the, the conversation itself takes place in the manner that will ultimately be presented in the final product, more or less, right? So it needs to make sense how it... it, it both chronologically, but also narratively, the, the conversation needs to unfold in a way that would be pleasing to listen to at the end. And so uh, back to your question, I take all that information and I put together first a spreadsheet of questions. And I actually populate the spreadsheet with answers that I know of. Um, and, you know, this might be where my writing background and my communications background comes in really handy. But I, I kind of weave this, this narrative through my interview questions. So if I'm doing a couple, for example, I'll do one video shoot with one partner, another video shoot with the other partner, and then come back for the third video shoot um, with the two of them together. And the first shoot, the first interview, let's say it's mom. 
that conversation is going to be about mom's background, her upbringing, all the way up into the point until mom meets dad, right? And it finishes with, tell me the story of how you met so-and-so. And then mm-hmm. I'll do the same thing for the other partner. And then when we do the joint interview, it begins with, you know, let's talk about the courtship, you know, and, and we kind of continue through there in a logical fashion, ending the interview with questions around what are your hopes and your dreams for the future? You know, what advice do you have for your grandchildren as they walk their, their this journey, as they walk the path of life? How do you want to be remembered? Things like that. So there's, there's a real logical flow to how it progresses. Um, the challenge, of course, is being able to know when it's okay to, to break from the chronology and, and go down different paths. You don't want to be so rigid that you can't be in the moment. If somebody says something that's poignant or you think bears further exploration, you need to be able to go there. And so, I, you know, as I always say, these aren't going to be completely chronological, but they kind of follow a, a loosely chronological arc. And then when you're in the editing room or when you have your editor work on it, um, are any of the stories cut or is everything that is said, does it all stay in the, the, final, the final recording? So that gets into the packages that we offer. Um, the legacy film, which is kind of the, the core package, what I was just describing before, these, these longer interviews they will serve as the basis for any package. So I firmly believe someone's doing this because they want all of these stories. So I'm very, very careful about not cutting anything unless it it adds nothing to the piece. You know, if it's, if it's something that could potentially offend, um, I, I kind of think through very carefully, you know, is this something that I can outright cut or is it something that I should speak with the individual about to, to make sure it could come out, right? I don't want to be exerting my editorial eye um, on the legacy piece because that's that's them, right? This is supposed to be them, their stories, in their words, their telling. Right. And to your point, we don't know, as the, as the person who's coming in from the outside and creating these projects, we don't always know well, we probably never know exactly what's going to resonate with the viewers or the readers. Um, and so something that might seem like it's uh, superfluous to us could be really poignant and meaningful to the family members. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you on that. I, I agree with, um, I agree with your editorial <laughs> style. <laughs> Absolutely. So important. Um, the legacy films we talk about as being lightly edited, meaning we're cleaning them up you know, we're getting rid of the the coughs and the sneezes. We we had we film with two cameras so that we can really edit those together cleanly. We're dropping in photos, maybe a little bit of B-roll footage that we shoot, but it's a very light touch. And at the end of the day, what someone's getting for an individual is going to average three hours, and for a couple, you know, as much as four hours. That's what they're signing up for. The additional packages, the packages that that are a little more involved and cost more, that's when we're doing edits using that footage. So you were talking about the teasers on the website. We call them showcase pieces. They're about six to 10 minutes. And what they do is they are distilling the stories and the motifs of the full legacy film into something that can be seen over a short period of time, you know, maybe for the 
for the cousins who, who aren't going to be interested in really sitting and digesting hours of footage, you know, this is the piece for them. If they're going to share something with social media or show something at a birthday party or something like an anniversary, that's what the showcase piece is. And that's, that's a, a totally different animal. That's really where we're, we're editing. We're bringing in full music and there's quick cuts and we are making editorial choices. Uh, my editor and I, you know, we're, we're discussing what, at, you know, what speaks to who these people are, like what is their essence and what needs to come through. Um, those are lots of fun. And then we just uh, started doing full length feature documentaries. These are, you know, 30 to 45 minutes but in the same vein as the showcase piece, again, it's you're making editorial choices and, and trying to distill down what you have from all of this longer legacy film raw footage. Well, it, before we started recording, I mentioned that years ago, long before I got into doing life stories, I had done a video about my grandma. And it was mostly because I had gotten a Mac computer and they, you know, I had iDVD and iMovie and I just, and I loved my grandma and I was a stay at home mom and I wanted to have something to do. And this was really, really fun. Um, but it, it took an enormous amount of time. It was no problem for me. I mean, we had all the time that we needed. I think it was from beginning to end. I probably worked on it for a couple of years, you know, and I, I would, I say work on it, but it was just a little bit here and a little bit there. And then I would go for periods of not doing anything on it. And what I ended up with was a half an hour video. And we had gone to different locations. We had seen her old school and her old house. And, um, you know, I had old footage, uh, movie footage, film footage from the 1930s. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that it was such a long process. So I'm assuming that when you're talking about these 30 or 40 minute feature films, that must be um, completely different as far as how many man hours you need to put into it to shape it into that type of narrative compared to the three hour standard package. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Man and woman hours. <laughs> we, we are, um, like I said, we, we just launched that product line only within the last couple of months. And so I've only really done one and I'm now working on a second one at that level. But what we're talking about are nine to 12 month engagements. They, they, oh, you know, okay. there's more yeah. research involved. You're going to be doing additional shoots. You're going to probably be bringing in genealogy and other components, um, converting old footage and media, um, to, you know, to digital. So no doubt, definitely more involved. Isn't it funny how it, it's the same thing with writing? You assume, you know, you're you're saying that the core package is three hours, which if somebody doesn't understand it, they would think, well, that's what I want, as opposed to the much shorter version, which, you know, you and I recognize that that can be gold. You know, that's that's the part that really takes a lot of artful creativity. Um, and it's the same with writing. It's much, much easier to write long. It's much harder to write short and concise and um, distill things down to um, to their essence and to create that storyline that is compelling and engaging. I so, think there's that, there's that old yeah, nugget about a, a journalist, you know, who hands in the story to an editor and says, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it would have been, it would have been, you know, much shorter if I had only had the time. And, but, but, but it gets to one of the inherent challenges in this business, which is, and I think maybe even more for, for video than for writing is that most people don't understand what goes into 
creating these. They have no sense for uh, filming uh, or for what goes into editing. And many people think, well, it's as simple as holding up an iPhone. Why is it going to be thousands and thousands of dollars if, you know, I could do this so easily? Um, and, and And you don't want to have to get into explaining the minutia of the editing process. I mean, what could be worse than walking through that with somebody. So that is uh, an inherent challenge. I find that with people with books as well. And I used to really try to drive home, well, you know, it takes so many hours of editing. It takes so many hours of transcription. It, you know, it takes so many hours, more hours towards the end of a book because then you're tying things in, you're getting transitions and all that. And I realize, just like you're saying, you know, people don't want to sit there and listen to it. I mean, they're hiring us to do these jobs because they don't want to do the jobs. They don't want to know about everything that goes into it. And now I just sort of tap, you know, I, I, I show them the sample books and I, and I just kind of tap on one and I say, well, you know, it, it's, it's a costly project because it's a big job to create a book. And for you, you know, you have all of these, um, these samples that people can look at and the production value is astounding. I mean, I was really impressed when I started looking at, at some of the clips of the videos. Um, and I would guess that a lot of people probably get won over by that, but, um, Do you find that when you sit down and do that initial um, interview with them, you know, before you bring out the cameras, do people really get engaged then because then they're seeing that they're going to be sharing their stories and they're, they're indeed starting on that process already? Absolutely. Um, So I, there's a little trick that I use to kind of get past the whole kind of getting to know you and get right to deep sharing and feeling comfortable. And it's, it's that I don't, I, so typically when we think with our brains, when, when, when we have time to think with our brains, we editorialize, we monitor, you know, Oh, I don't know this person. And so this is what I'm going to say. Um, and so what I like to do is start with these kind of rapid fire questions where I say to people, okay, what we're going to do before we really dive in here is I'm just going to ask you a series of questions, fill in the blank questions. I'm going to want you to kind of say the first thing that comes into your head. And, you know, they say, okay. And then I, I, I start with some really innocuous questions. You know, what is your favorite type of food? You know, pizza. Great. Uh, what's a style of music that you really like? And they tell me that, by the way, I use that information for the music in their showcase piece. All right. You know, oh, so good. Th- th- yeah. these things all serve <laughs> a purpose, you know, but then I'll jump, you know, and, but then without really even like letting them know, I'll say, um, something that I'm really passionate about is. Right. And, and, ah. and, and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll say, uh, you know, health. Great. Uh, a time in my life when I struggled was, um, when I had, when I had my miscarriage, right. It's like, and, 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 and so within three to five minutes, I've taken them through 15 rapid fire questions and without really even thinking, I've learned that this person has had a miscarriage, that they struggled with that, that this is going to be something important to talk about. I've talked about mentors with them. I've talked about um, things that they're proud of, um, moments in their life when they were happy. Like we get to all of these really powerful things and that just immediately bypasses the getting to know you. All of a sudden we're in it and we're sharing. That's genius. I absolutely love that. So it's it's kind of a little psychological um, hack, I yeah. guess. Uh, not in any kind of bad way, but uh, yeah, it's it's tricking 
the mind to be able to not see those obstacles in the way and just have a free flow. I think that's so good. Um, because for you, you know, if you're sitting down, say you're sitting down to record with them once, you know, you've got the, the pre, uh, the pre recording session and then you've got the recording session. It doesn't give you very much time. You know, I'm, I'm sitting a lot of times over the course of a year, multiple, multiple interviews, and that gives us plenty of time to warm up to each other, um, for the, for the person to really see that I can be trusted. But for you, you, you found a way around that. That's, well, that's it's, amazing. It's, it's certainly not foolproof. And the, and the reality is for, for many people, particularly, I think, the, the population that we are working with directly, um, the older population, um, there can be a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst around this type of work, as you know. Um, and, you know, it's not always enough to, to you know, have two sessions. Um, you know, uh, what, well, put it this way, once I'm in, everything's usually wonderful, right? After I've met with them, mm. there's a comfort mm-hmm. level that's established and it's great. But getting to that first conversation has not always happened, right? So there have been numerous mm. occasions where literally the day before the pre-interview is scheduled, a person has backed out um, for, for oh. a variety of reasons. Um, and I, I see that. It's, it's something certainly to be aware of. I actually have a little bit of a different experience Um you know the the clientele the the population that i work with um they almost never seem to have anxiety once you get 3 to 5 minutes into the first sit down and tell me your stories um i i have found especially the older um you know the older they are uh they seem to be incredibly trusting uh, um to the point where you know, I, I sometimes compare them with maybe the baby boomer generation or even much, much younger people who um, I think we have as a society become less trusting of each other. And so if we're really talking about sort of that great generation, you know, the people who lived through the war, um, uh, they to me seem to be very, very open. But I'm also wondering if it has to do with the fact that I'm a woman um, and, and I think that probably there might be a little bit less resistance to talking, you know, especially if it's a woman talking to a woman, you know, we, in general, you know, we, we've grown up being good communicators with each other, but also the fact that there is not going to be um, anything beyond just a really small microphone sitting on the table. And for you, um, if, if the camera hasn't come on, if the camera has not come out yet, they know that it's going to be coming out. And um, I would guess that that might be something that you um, that you have to work at so that it does not seem like, um, you know, a, a big elephant in the room or something that's going to distract them away from telling their, their truth and telling yeah, their I mean, stories. Yeah, you hit on a couple of important points. First of all, with regard to women, I, I wouldn't doubt that, which is, in fact, why um, the first two associate producers who I brought on, I'm expanding the team, other people who are going to be doing the same work I do uh, are both really amazing women. And I think that, you know, they will appeal to a certain person more than having a guy, right? That's just the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's also, there, there's more of a slow build in the writing world. This is, you know, we're coming in, we're getting to know you, and then boom, a week and a half later, we're going to have cameras in your place. And uh-huh, and so, right. yeah, I mean, my, my parents, I did this with them uh, last March. And I mean, my mom in particular really supports and loves this work. But she's terrified of being on camera. And, you know, and for all of 
her support and giving me referrals. She was one of my best early salespeople, right? Um, you know, sitting in front of the camera was difficult for her. And it took about three minutes and then she was golden, right? Oh, you know, good. you just, yeah. you have to, it's like anything else, right? You just, if, if there's going to be fear and trepidation, once you start, once you're in, that person is having a conversation with me. They forget the cameras there. They forget there's another individual working the cameras there. And it's just the two of us in that space. And that does it for our interview with Rich Polt of Acknowledge Media. Because this conversation was so good, it got a little bit lengthy, so I decided to split it in half. Next time, you'll be able to hear part two of my conversation with Rich. And that's when he goes into talking about what happens when he sits down with a storyteller or storytellers and what happens in the editing process. If you'd like to see links to everything that we talked about on today's show, head over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 55. Thanks for listening. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.